Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Bill. And I'm Mikkel. And we are excited to be with you today. Uh, Mikkel, I was thinking, uh, you and I were messaging, like, what should we talk about this weekend? And uh, I was thinking about how you and I, and maybe humans in general, come to a place of overcoming their prejudices, how they become more accepting of people who are different, and what some of those experiences look like, and what some of that transformation looks like. And I wonder, I mean, I'm happy to to start us off, but I wonder if maybe you've got a story of when you were younger, maybe ways in which you saw certain kinds of people that had something different than you had, uh, or diff- were different than the way you were, and why those things shaped your view at that time, parents, friends, uh, teachers, other people that had an impact on how you perceived maybe somebody as a bad thing when they were different. Yeah, so that it's really interesting. Um, I As I thought about this topic over the week, um, a couple of things come to mind. When I was a kid, um, my my grandparents on my dad's side took in foster kids and adopted a lot of kids. And a lot of the kids that my grandparents took in um, were older. So, you know, usually 10, 11, 12 into their teens. And a lot of them were um, African-American. And so I was exposed to people that are, that were different from me from a young age. And I never really viewed them as different from me until I was probably eight or nine. And the only reason my perception shifted was because I had one of my adopt, it was one of my dad's adopted siblings and she was around the same age as me. Um, she said, she said, I wish my skin was white like yours. And I was like, what do you mean? I hadn't ever really, it hadn't ever really sunk in, which sounds crazy, but I just viewed her as, as the same as me. And as we got talking, she mentioned how hard it was to be brown and that people treated her differently. And I never, I never really understood that. Um, and so I had, I was exposed to that diversity within the family. Um, and then, you know, I grew up in a religious culture that viewed anybody who was not within that system as different. And so I did, I held a lot of um, biases and prejudices against people that were outside of that religious system. And it wasn't until my high school years when my family moved from Utah to Pennsylvania that I was exposed to people who were outside of my religious system and were still good people. And so it's, it, I started thinking about, well, how, how can that be possible? Because everything that I had been taught was that only good people existed within my religious system. Yeah, when I, when I was young, similar things. Um, and maybe something that was different was that my family were very big on telling jokes. And those jokes were often racial jokes or uh, jokes about certain ethnicities. I remember lots of 
jokes about Polish people or jokes about uh, people with dark skin. Uh, I remember lots of humor being uh, pointed in those kinds of directions and it, it became normalized because it was my uncles and my aunts. It was my grandpa. Uh, at times it was my own dad, and my own mom. And my family was very blue collar and I, I, they, you know, they, they worked their tails, tail ends off in various uh, occupations. I've got uncles who are in the quarry, aunts who are in factories. My dad was a, a foreman for an asphalt company. Um, my mom, on the other hand, was an LPN for uh, a nursing home. And I think often when you're in certain kinds of work settings, if you work construction, for instance, and I know that's it's kind of cliche or a stereotype to kind of go here, but I think it's very true. For my uncles and my aunts who worked either construction or worked in a factory, you could see that it was easier to resort to foul language. It was easier to resort to humor that I today would consider inappropriate. And uh, and like you, when I'm a little kid, I don't I don't know any different. I just think kids don't know they they'll they'll get in the sandbox and play with anybody. And as you listen to your family and their views, it you become aware that that we humans here we we perceive certain kinds of uh, differences as less than. We see certain people as less than, and it's okay to make jokes about them. And as I'm trying, like, I, I'm aware, like, that's not cool. And I go to school, I, um, at the school I go to, the, the uh, Perkins Middle School, there was an African-American kid who came in as a new student. And I don't know what grade it was, maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere in there. Uh, maybe this was even junior high. And uh, this African-American kid comes in for his first day in our school. He's new. And I try to befriend him, and I'm being nice to him, and I'm talking to him, and I just, I just want like this kid, like I know what it's like, like to be the new kid and and to be uh, scared and nervous and like not know how you fit in, and so I'm just trying to help him feel welcomed into our school. And that night, there's a get together at a skating rink in our town, and I get to the skating rink, and this uh, this kid who I'm trying to friend, he's there, and I walk up to him, and I'm trying to talk to him. And suddenly he just starts fighting me. Um, and next thing I know, I'm on the ground and this kid's on top of me and he's punching me. And it is. And quickly, uh, other, other like friends of mine and friends of his come in and kind of break it up and pull, pull him off. And what I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of like why that happened. And he makes some sort of comment about like, I can't, if you as a white kid are seen hanging out with me, then, then that's going to hurt my like credibility. And I don't remember exactly the words he used, but that was the message. Yeah. And, and so I right away, like, Oh, my kind can't hang out with your kind and we have to not be near each other. And all I wanted to do was just be nice. And, uh, and like you, you and I both grow up in a system that tells us that people of color at one point in our religious history were believed to be less than and deeply treated as less than. And, and our, our system still hasn't addressed that fully. And I went to work at a job at McDonald's and there was a African-American lady there and she was so nice to me and we got along really well and we laughed a lot. And one day she comes up to me and she goes, why doesn't your religion allow us to, to be a part of, of being equal within like the walls of your system? And uh, I look at her and, I, and I, I, in my mind, I'm not 
smart enough. I'm not wise enough to, to sense that, that my system's answer for that question is bullshit. And so I tell her, I tell her the theology and the history of why she was less than before she came to this earth, when she lived with God, um, man, I felt like, like I, I I was just doing my, my religious duty of sharing these answers. And within a year or two, I realized like, Oh, we, we humans and we systems we're fucking this shit up all the time, all the time. And so from all the way up from 17 years old and early, everything around me, my religion, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandfather, my cousins, everybody taught me that people of color were less than it taught me that people of other ethnicities, uh, Asian people who couldn't speak our language. Like we, it was almost permissible to look down on them. Um, Polish people. There were so many jokes in my family about people who are Polish and, and just, it became so normalized and acceptable and it's taken, may I even say decades to kind of strip that down and deconstruct that. Yeah. And I think Bill, I know for me that I'm, I keep finding where I'm prejudiced and where I'm biased and where I'm not being inclusive. Um, Kelsey and I watched a show yesterday on Netflix called Explained and they talked about political correctness and kind of the process and the history of, of that. And it was really interesting because um, the commentary on it is that, you know, why do we have political correctness? Why should we care? And they were interviewing a couple of people. And, and one of the people said, you know, you often don't realize that you're being bigoted or biased or prejudiced until someone points it out to you. And that's why that's why we need to we need people to point it out to us. Um Otherwise, we may not know that we're being derogatory towards another person or to a group of people. I read this thing on Facebook that said, one of my friends told me about a powerful lesson in her daughter's high school class this winter. They're learning about the Salem witch trials, and their teacher told them that they were going to play a game. The teacher said, I'm going to come around and whisper to each of you, whether you're a witch or a normal person, your goal is to build the largest group possible that does not have a witch in it. At the end of the game, any group found to have a witch gets a failing grade. The teens dove into grilling each other. One fairly large group formed, but most of the students broke into small, exclusive groups, turning away anyone they thought gave off even a hint of guilt. Okay, the teacher said, you've got your groups. Time to find out which ones fail. All witches, please raise your hands. No one raised a hand. The kids were confused and told him he'd messed up the game. Did I? Was anyone in Salem an actual witch, or did everyone just believe what they'd been told? And that is how you teach kids how easy it is to divide a community. I thought that was really interesting. He, The teacher went around and told everyone they were within the community, you know, that no one was a witch, but they all believed that someone else was different and started breaking up into groups. And as I look at that, um, you know, I think that groups are an important part of society. I don't think that we can fully function without groups, but I also think that there's systems within our society that force us to um, develop that us versus them mentality, and it's not always healthy. Yeah, and when I think of that, and by the way, I think that is an incredible uh, thing to do within a classroom. There, there are so many layers of tribalism and the unhealthiness of it that I think come out in doing something like that. And I hope each of those kids kind of hang on to that as a, as a impactful memory as they go through life and, and gain wisdom and experience that, that seems so profound. 
so often these things are based on stories. So when when my family told me about uh, gay people, when my family told me about uh, African Americans, when my family told me about Polish people, it never came with they live in Poland and came from there and we came from Germany or we came from England and we're just different. No, it came with hundreds of stories. It came with stories, in those groups, it came with stories about work ethic. It came with stories about intelligence. It came with stories about uh, what they think about us. Everywhere we are dividing us and them, it's not just a matter of saying us lives here and them lives there, or us works here and them works there. It comes with hundreds and hundreds of stories about why these people are less than. And, and coming to grips with all the stories we tell about people and groups of people and how we diminish by telling another story. When you tell this story about the, the witch trials... You're never letting the person speak for themselves. The person speaking for themselves is going, look, I'm not a witch. This is stupid. This is insane. This is crazy. You're going you're gonna to hurt me over the fact that you think something. Because, because the, the neighbor next door's cat died, now I'm being labeled as, as, as if I'm something other than you. We, we've got to get to a place where we stop telling people stories. How do, we, how do we do that? For me, it's asking them what their story is and letting them tell their own story and me working really hard to eliminate from my mind the the stories that I've been told about people, the stereotypes I've been told about people, and to let someone's story stand on their own and represent them. And, and that's come after years and years of of, of at first thinking it's perfectly okay to tell another person's story and doing it all the time to over the course of two decades coming to a place where I deeply value another, another's human story and other groups' tribal story and putting emphasis on really wanting to know what makes that person tick. Interesting. That, that concept of um, letting someone else tell their story and you not telling it for them or... Um, yeah, just you letting them tell their story. That's something that is new to me. And that's something that I'm practicing. I, I'm not good at it, but I'd like to be better at it. And so, you know, I just, we had, I had an experience a couple weeks ago where I was with um, some friends and somebody asked me about someone else and why they weren't there. And, you know, I, I used to be where I would, you know, tell the story and, this experience, I said, you know, I'm really not sure that's their story to tell. You'll have to ask them. But that's a practice. And it's something that I'm not perfect at. But you're right, we've got to stop telling other people's stories. And when someone tells us their story, I think it's really important that we hold their story for what it is and not um, not embellish or add details that we think are important. Yeah, in fact, I was present when that happened. And I, I saw you on two different occasions. You were you were asked that about why that person was or was not participating, and people are just looking for detail. They're just looking for insight. I don't I don't think within this group they were looking to necessarily gossip strongly, but but they wanted to know like what are the hangups. And when you answered the way you did, I, I had this big smile on my face because I knew what you were doing. Um, and you did it so nonchalantly um, and just kind of 
like moved on to something else and it was obvious you were trying really hard like look i'm just gonna let that person speak for themselves and they're not here so there's nowhere we can go with this um it it really it made me proud because i struggle with this too and and this is one of the things that i i think you've you've got down pretty well in some of these instances and i still would be prone to want to try to figure out what's going on yeah i think it's human nature that we that we all want to try and figure out what's going on and honestly bill the the only reason i said it in that experience um, was because I had had someone else do that for me. I, you know, there was another gathering that I was at and I, there was someone missing and I said, Hey, where's so-and-so. And the person replied back to me, you know, that's not my story to tell, but if you want to know, you could ask them. And I was like, wow, I, I really valued them not um, gossiping or um, telling me something that may not have been entirely true. Not that people not that people do that, but sometimes it, you know, information gets misrelayed. And so I just sat with that and I thought, I really like that. That's something that I would want. Um, for me, if I was absent, I would want, for whatever reason, I would want someone to say, you know, I'm not really sure why Mikhail's not here, but that's not my story to tell. You could ask instead of making up a, a story that may not be true. And so I just, I honored that and I, I want to be a better person. And so that's something that I'm consciously working on. It, it reminds me of the other side of the coin. I want to go off in a different direction here for a moment. I hadn't planned on this, but when you said that, it kind of a light bulb went on. People are also telling stories about us, right? People are telling right. stories about you. People are telling right. stories about me. People are telling stories about my wife. People are telling stories about your wife. Another thing that I'm really conscious of now is the, the normalcy of people gossiping and conversating and telling stories about each other. And I'm going to find myself as the topic of discussion sometimes. And I'm going to find that even people I love and adore within my friend, even within my closest friends are at times going to tell my story. Uh, how are you, how do you handle that? How do you handle like, like in the past, like I know when I was young, if, if I found out someone was talking about me, I was just so deflated and hurt and I didn't understand, like, why didn't you come to me and, and ask me and talk to me? But, but the reality is that's just not going to happen every time. How have you handled on this side of things when, when you perceive that others are telling your story and are gossiping about you? So I don't know if I've, I've had that come to my, I don't know if I've been confronted with that before. I don't know if I've had an experience where I've, I've heard someone else talking about me, um, without me being there. And so I, I don't know if I can speak to that. Um, I have, I mean, I've, I've been aware of where someone has taken something that I shared and they shared it outside of that. And at first it pokes. And then suddenly I came in and go like, wait a minute, we're all doing this. Like I, like I do it sometimes. I'm not doing it to hurt anybody, but I do right. find like, we're always like, Hey, where are our friends at? What are they doing? What are they up to? Oh, you know, they're, they're having this hard time with this. And all of a sudden this conversation ensues where those things occur. Um, and I, and I've found myself to have been in the center of that conversation. Um, on this side of things, I'm less hurt by it than I used to be. I'm less poked and it's like, Oh, it's, it's really not a big deal. I know those people love me. And even if it was enemies, even if it was people that didn't like me, even if it was people that were out to get me, I, I just feel like I'm in a better space today to maturely handle um, those kinds of things happening. And, and I think, 
I think you would too. And, and I think at some point you're going to run into it. I think it's natural. Sure. It's going to happen. But I think we all go like, ah, you know, you know, they messed up and they, they told a piece of my story and they didn't really have permission to do that. But hey, we're all doing it. I forgive them. I move on. And rather than hold this deep seated hurt that I, that I would have definitely have held 15 years ago. I think that it depends on who is sharing the story. You know, if, if it's someone from where I used to live in Idaho and they don't know me anymore, you know, they, the version of me that they thought existed, you know, seven years ago doesn't exist anymore. Um, I'm not going to give them two shits because they don't know me. And they're, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that Brene Brown comment. If they're not in the arena and they're not working on their shit, they're not worth my time and energy. But if it's if it's a friend that I love and, and I trust them and I value them as a human being and they're sharing parts of my story, I think it goes to intent. So if their intent is um, kind and loving, then like you said, we, we all do that. Um, if their intent is malice, um, then that, that creates a different scenario. And I'm not one to sit back and just take it. Oftentimes, um, I... I, and maybe that's my coping and defense mechanism is to confront, but I do think that it's important to have resolution or at least clarity and understanding perspective. Yeah, I agree. I, when someone tells my story, especially if they're coming from a place of trying to protect the, the, not my group, but the out group, their group, if they're trying to protect their beliefs or they're trying to protect themselves I am adamant that I will intervene. And again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold on to resentment. That's the part I'm letting go of. But what I will do is I will put myself into the situation and say, just for the record, here's my story. I wish you would have come and asked me, um, but let me set the record straight. And I've done that before. You know, we talk quite a bit about this religious system that you and I belong to. There are people back in Ohio. I live in Southern Utah. That's where you live. I have, I lived in uh, Ohio for the first uh, 35 years of my life. And the congregation that I went to there, those are my friends. They're, they're almost family and in many ways are family. And being out here in Southern Utah, I had discovered that they were gossiping about what had happened to my beliefs and how my beliefs had changed and when they had changed. And the story wasn't accurate. And so I ended up reaching out to my entire congregation back there in Ohio sent an email to everybody and said, let me set the record straight. I'm hearing this, this rumor got back to me that this is the story being told about me. That story is not true. Here's, here's what happened. Here's the timeline of events. If anybody in the future needs to know any of this, which I'm happy to share, it, all you have to do is just either pick up a phone or send me an email or drop me a Facebook message rather than tell these stories behind my back. And, and so I have no problem. I think all humans should set the record straight. I think it's how we teach the world not to tell our story. Right. You know, Bill, I, I saw another interesting comment on Facebook and it was somebody that said they have a really hard time with confrontation because their whole life through their religious system had been taught to just obey. And so there's no, they'd never learned a healthy way to talk about issues that come up or to deal with times when we're poked or when, you know, our story's being mistold or those kinds of things. So what tools like how how have you gotten to the point where you can talk to someone and have a conversation or or send an email or whatever um, when things are out of alignment? Because we both grew up in a system like that, and and that's something that was heavily stressed in my family too. Was you don't ever talk back, you don't ever argue, you just do what you're told, no questions asked. And so 
I'm just curious is, is how you've come to a place where you can talk about things with people that are, that are difficult. Um, I think in some situations you realize there's a sense of wisdom in you, in you that you realize you're not going to make any progress in the conversation and may in fact get, get stepped on even more. And so maybe, maybe the best answer in some of these situations is you just turn around and walk away. Um, and, and sometimes that's really hard because sometimes you feel this need to, to set the record straight or to uh, make sure someone knows that they messed up telling pieces of your story. So there have been instances where I'm just like, it's not worth it. And I've walked away. There are other instances where I am angry and I want to put somebody in their place. So it's a, an ego protection. Right. But, but that almost never works, right? Like anytime right. you just get into a shouting battle with somebody, you almost never change anyone's mind. Right. And what, what they've done when they've talked about um, the psychology of getting somebody to move in their beliefs or their perspectives, they talk about rather than standing across from someone and debate them, you have to stand next to someone and you have to put your arm around them and you have to be their friend showing them a better way. And I've always tried to be cognizant of that. So when I have conversations with people I disagree with, I'm first, I try to build some level of friendship and trust. And as I'm, and sometimes that may be just as small as standing next to them. Um, it may be just as much as realizing like, oh, my arms are crossed and that gives off the, the enemy uh, or the I'm, I'm against you. And so I put my hands down by my sides. There's a, there's a recognition of what body language looks like that is more friendly. There's a recognition of smiling and bringing up some kind of common agreement first. Um, there's lots of, of tactics and those tactics are based and I want this person to hear me and I want them to understand that I'm not, I need to let go of my anger. I need to not come from a position of I'm right, you're wrong. Um, and just to say like, hey, and generally when I have the most success, when I have the least success, I am uh, just throwing out data and I'm just disagreeing and I'm just looking at the person like, you know, you're an idiot and you're wrong. When I've I have seen the, you like that. Yeah. And I do. And I, and I sometimes have a sense of superiority in a conversation and I know I'm right. And so I'm just going to ground their face into the dirt on it. And, and I, in the bullshit. end, I don't, I don't usually, well, I don't usually win them over that way. Usually when I win somebody over, it is with soft conversation it is with trying to point them to things, but not pushing them to things. It's giving them resources and letting them look at those things in their own time. It's coming from a place of, hey, I'd love to answer questions. I'd love to talk more about this. I'd love to hear more about what you think about some of the things I've said. It's trying to build some sense of, um, I, I'm, your, I'm your friend in this conversation. I'm not your enemy. I've watched so many presidential debates and you see these people just yell and scream at each other. You see these people do it in a way that when the thing is over, everybody who believed in one side still believes in that side. Everybody who believes in the other side still believes in that side. Everybody who went in thinking a certain person was going to win and wanted a certain person to win walks away thinking that person win. And there really isn't very much ground that moved in that conversation. It's just not the best way to do it. I probably didn't even answer the question, did I? You didn't. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a really good explanation. Good try. Yeah, good try. So good. So tell me, you've got all these biases you talked about as you were a kid. Yeah. How have you let go of your racism? How have you let go of your perspectives that you held because they were given to you to hold 
of people who are different? Um, I think being empathetic. So, for example, when when I would be out in my family group and we'd be out in public and my dad would make comments about people, there would be there would be times when he would make comments that were hurtful, making fun of somebody's weight or making fun of somebody's hair color or making fun of, you know, someone's clothing choices or any variety of, of things. And I would see, you know, let's say... I have one kind of vivid example. We were at the movie theater and we were standing in line waiting to get uh, popcorn. And there was a woman, probably two, maybe three people in front of us. And my dad was making comments about her weight. Just so horrible. And she heard him. And I saw her face and it, it just dropped. And so seeing that experience inside... I was just like, oh my gosh. One, I was mortified. I was so embarrassed to be standing next to my dad. And number two, so embarrassed for the person that had heard those hurtful comments. And so it just, it forced me to start looking at people and seeing them as human beings. And and I think part of why I was able to to like feel what other people were, were feeling is because there were things within my family that would happen that would make me feel mortified and embarrassed. Like, if I showed any sadness, um, that would be like my dad and my brothers would just jump on me. You know, they'd, they'd start making fun of me and teasing me. And, and so I, I, I got to feel what other people felt like. And I just started trying to see people as human beings and that why couldn't we be different, but still be kind to one another Um, And then again, moving from Utah, you know, I was 15 when we moved from Utah. And so my, the people that I'd known were only people within my religious system. And then we moved to Pennsylvania where I was the only one within that religious system in my entire high school and seeing other people that were different. You know, I was exposed to some different cultures, different religions, um, and seeing that they were still good people kind of forced me to reevaluate things that I'd always been taught. Yeah. In a very similar way, when I took the time and I love, and I'm lucky in this way, I love history and I loved religion generally to the point where I took the time to take seriously both my, my history, my history classes in, uh, in high school, but also my history classes in college and my um, I took a bunch of uh, religions of the world and kinds of those kinds of classes, philosophy classes in college. That's cool. And as I took those classes, what I started to realize was there is a story that the that I was told about all of these groups. I was told right. about the Japanese in World War II. I was told about African Americans. I was told about um, LGBT people. And when I started as a young adult to try to get as much information as I could, I started to hear and listen to other stories that were very different than the ones I were I was told about these people. And so suddenly you start to realize like, oh, there is the group in control of the story primarily, and they tell a certain story about all of these groups and people. And then there is those people's stories, and the reason they did the things they did is explained very differently when you listen to why they did that versus what we say about why they did that. And as I started to become aware of lots of stories from various perspectives, 
I started to sense like, oh, there are agendas and there are biases and there are people who are not being objective and there are people who need the story to be seen a certain way. And once I gathered in stories all across the spectrum on any one of these things, I started to go like, oh, this isn't the way I was taught. This isn't the way I was told. Right. And I felt a deep need to get it right. Like, what's the real story? And often the real story is deeply complicated. I came from a family of Democrats. And I don't know how, but somehow I found myself as a Republican as a young adult and as, a, as an older teenager. And I had lots of uncles who were Democrat, and they were, they were so one-sided. And, and for a while, as a Republican, sitting in the backyard of my grandpa's backyard and all of our family there and we're debating politics, I, I, I was also one-sided. And then as life went on, I realized like, oh, both sides have some truth. Both sides have some errors. There really is a middle ground that honors that it can take the good from both directions and put it together and have a much better, healthier story. And so I just started to value truth over the beliefs that I had. That's that's really cool that you could do that um, as a teenager. And I, I, I think for me, like books really helped too. Um, I, I also loved history and I also, I loved reading and reading was an escape for me. And so I would read almost anything that I could get my hands on. And one of my favorite kind of genres growing up was historical fiction. And it just, I think it forces you to consider a perspective outside of your own. What do you think about that, Bill? Yeah, I think books books do a great job of that. Uh, tra- we were talking about this in one of the other episodes. Travel yeah. does it. Um, anytime yeah. you become aware of others, you suddenly, you suddenly make them more human. Like if I know when I went to a play as a 10 year old, uh, in school and it was a play about Harriet Tubman. Oh, and I thought, yes, I thought I was going like when I, when the paper was handed out, I read it too fast and I thought we were going to see a play about Harriet Truman (laughs) or Harry Truman. And it ended up being a play about Harriet Tubman. Right. So and like, so I was confronted with like <laughs> shock and awe of like, here, we're doing something different than I thought. And by the end of that play, and that was my first encounter with how awful my white heritage was I, to yeah. their black heritage. And I had to confront these stories that my parents and my uncles and my aunts had said about the, the worth, the honesty, the work ethic of people of color and I had to deal with maybe a different story of like, wait a minute, there's a reason that the that behavior among people of color, good and bad, by the way, good and bad is different in places than my, my white family or my white heritage. And I go like, oh, we, we did some of that to them. We, we caused this. We, we held these people down. We stuffed them in ships and ship them across oceans only to sell these people to to essentially be slaves uh, and servants for, for people of my white heritage, it forced me to go like, oh, I, my family and my heritage never told the full story. Right. So I listened to a podcast earlier this week, um, and the gal who was being interviewed is someone that I've interacted with through one of my self-improvement coaching groups. And it was fascinating to hear her story. Um, and it just 
there were a couple of um, thoughts that it kind of spurred. Um, so she's African American, and she talks about growing up in Utah as one of the only African Americans in her school and in her neighborhood. And um, she she tells the story where people couldn't understand why. Well, two things couldn't understand why there was a Black History Month, and um, it it sort of goes back to that. Well, why why can't we have straight pride? You know. Um, and and she said that one of the things that was really hard for her in growing up is that people were curious, but their curiosity. Um, occurred in a way that made her feel even more different. And I thought that was interesting because I think that there's times when I'm really curious about another culture or someone that's different from me. And maybe that curiosity, um, which in my mind has good intent, can be perceived as something that is, again, just drawing that line between you're different from me. For example, Corey has got really curly hair and it's super thick and I love his hair. And it, it, in my mind, as I'm listening to this woman tell her story about people being fascinated with her hair texture and the length of it and whatnot, it just helped divide her from other human beings. And so it, it got me thinking, like, do I do that? Does my curiosity about people being different make them feel even more different? Yeah, so if you're if you're asking about another person in a way that says, "Hey, I know you're extremely different from me. Tell me about your differences." Yeah, I could see how that would do that. Um So I, what's I, a healthier way to to handle that? Because I think that curiosity is an important part of um changing our perspective and and finding out what our biases are and helping us understand people better. Yeah, I th- I don't know that I. I don't know that I'm practicing the solution to that. When you ask that, what comes to mind is even to tell a person you're different. Tell me about your differences. Right. Is already maybe askew, and maybe a better way is to either a just like, hey, I find I find you interesting, and there are things that are similar, and there are things that are different. And without pointing to like, I just want to talk about the differences, maybe just ask questions that allow that person to just share themselves, both similarities and differences. Hmm. I like that. You, you also said this thing about, um, it, it made me think about like black lives matter versus all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about how often we're, we're, and I can't remember what the part of the story was. You said it maybe two minutes ago where you were talking about something so she she had kids ask her in school why they had a Black History Month. Yeah. And, you know, it, we do that. Why do and we do that? And the straight pride, you said, too. Right. Because people say that. You know, we, yeah. have a, we have pride to celebrate the LGBTQ community. And I've heard that comment over and over again. Well, we don't have straight pride. Yeah. And so as I think about when, for instance, when police are shooting down young Black youth, and the African-American community protest and they hold signs up that say Black Lives Matter. What they're saying is, up until this point, you have not valued our life the same way that you value your own because of the color of our skin. We're drawing attention to the fact that you have demeaned us and um, diminished us. And we're making a statement that that has to stop that we have to gain some ground so that there's a level of equality. 
And when, when the white community comes in and then says, but let's hold up signs now that say all lives matter. What, what you're saying in response is, I don't care about your push for equality. I want to keep things the way they are. And it's subtle at parts and not so subtle at others, but it's deeply disrespectful when a community or an individual says like, I'd like to have straight month. Well, straight people come from the place of privilege in our society. They're not the ones who are being belittled, demeaned and diminished and marginalized. There's no need for the people at the top of the social structure to draw attention to wanting to maintain that. It doesn't do any good to say, let's have straight month in terms of diminishing people who are committing suicide over their heterosexuality, which is, let's say, what's that number? Uh, Zero. There's zero people who are hurting themselves because they feel shame over their heterosexuality. Instead, these, these groups of people on the margins of our society or who have less equality. There's no equality. I shouldn't say less because there's no equality. Equal is equal. And anything less than equal is not equal. And so when groups in our society are not enjoying equality and others of us are enjoying privilege, we need to recognize it is not helpful to moving towards equality to point out that all of us matter. I was just looking the other day there at the old civil rights photos And there are groups of white people holding up signs that are similar to All Lives Matter in the civil rights movement, Um, similar to saying straight pride in the civil rights movement. And I'm out to dinner, and I I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but I'm out to dinner with my son, Zachary, and my wife and my daughter, uh, Natalie. And Zachary's talking to me about this. He's like, I love history. And I said, Zachary, what's the value of history? And he goes, the value of history is that we learn from our mistakes and we learn from the good things we did so that we can repeat the good stuff and we can keep the bad history from repeating itself. And I said, how well is that working, Zach? And he goes, I think it's working pretty good. And I said, I don't, I don't think it's working that good. I said, look around this restaurant. How many people here understand the civil rights movement? And he said, probably all of them. And I said, yep, I bet, I bet everybody here understands the civil rights movement. And now in 2019, they grasp that we came to a better place today in how we see people of color versus what we were doing to them then. And I said, have we learned from that? And he just paused for a moment, was thinking, and I jumped in and I said, no. I said, we are treating LGBT people today in very much the same way that we treated people of color in the civil rights movement and before. And when you grasp, there's still a significant bunch of people who have experienced learning the civil rights movement, understand we move the right direction and lack the wisdom to then apply those principles to other kinds of groups of people and to then see like, oh, this is no different even though it is a different group of people, this is the same thing at work. I don't think we've learned. Um, we sold an, let me say one more thing. I want, I want to hear that question. We sold an excavator at work the other day and a, a, two guys drove down from Idaho Falls to buy it. Two white guys, kind of kind of a little bit of a, um, I don't mean this negatively, but it, it, I'm trying to paint a picture, a little bit of a hillbilly-ish uh, persona. 
And my boss gets into a conversation because they're from the same religious system that we are. My boss gets into a conversation with them and they uh, get on the subject of people, African-American people. And they look at my boss and they go, because he says like, yeah, we should have learned our lesson from that civil rights thing. And we should have learned our lesson from the way our religious system handled people of color. And the one guy looked over at him and got kind of quiet and goes, but you, you do understand that black people are different from us. And my boss is like, uh, n- uh, no, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just pigmentation of their skin. They're a human being in the exact same way that we are. Um, we still have a long ways to go. Yeah, we do. We do. And so my question is, how do we, how do we be aware of what our biases are or our prejudices and in a healthy way that, that causes us to shift and not continue to perpetuate the system or the patterns, the behaviors that we've, that we've learned. You go first. No, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think it's complicated, um, but I think that it starts with at least being willing to consider another person's perspective without automatically dismissing it or thinking that your way is the only right way. Um, and I think... I don't know how you cultivate that or develop that, especially in a system that teaches you to not value independent thought. I think you hit the nail on the head. Just one other comment. I think that anything that pokes you or causes you to feel defensive is a really good time to evaluate why and where that, you know, where that's coming from. I think you've hit the answer. The answer is to expose yourself to the differences with a willingness to let go of thinking your perspective that somebody different is less than is, is the right answer. Like let that go and just sit in and lean in and and live in to learning about people and their differences and their similarities, what makes them just like you and what makes their, them different. And generally their differences come because they've had a different experience. So, Maybe I think too, just shifting our voc- vocabulary. Um, I think sometimes difference has a negative connotation. So maybe we just look at each person's uniqueness or their individuality, um, because no two people are alike. But like you said, we've got commonalities, experiences, you know, things that are similar, but also things that make us unique. Yeah, and and to say another thing, which is on the front end of life, that comes so difficult. It, we are in a tribal mindset. We are in groups that deeply influence how we see others and we trust those groups and we trust the authorities in those groups to lay down the truth. And I think part of it is as you become almost awakened, you realize like, oh, my group didn't tell me the truth. My authorities didn't tell me the truth. And you start to sense like, oh, truth may be something entirely different than what my parents told me, or my uncle told me, or my grandpa told me, or my minister told me. And when you start to sense like, oh, I don't have the real story. I've, I've been fooled just like the rest of us. Now it's up to me to go back in collectively and for me and you and all of us to collectively slow down and start telling each other a collective story so that we can figure out where we took the wrong data where we took the right data, where we got it wrong, where we got it right, and start to make movement. But but people don't do that on the front end. They trust the group, the system, the authorities they come from 
to some extent, that has to be shattered first. That has to be broken, and we have to learn how corrupt that one way of learning was before we can go back into other groups and start to learn from them. But I think, you know, Bill, just just in looking at my children, you know, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, and I think her seeing me become my own authority and her see me start questioning and reevaluating and and talking about the things that have shifted is causing her to experience some of the same things. And so, you know, I, I had a conversation with her dad this week where he was like, she believes something different and I don't know where this is coming from. And it's not that I'm overtly like trying to diminish or or badmouth the religious system that she's a part of because that's that's her journey and she needs to or gets to figure that out. Um, but she's questioning things and she's not just taking things at face value. And so I think that it's it's for me really awesome to see her not just assume that the authority that she's a part of has all of the answers. It's it's really cool. Yeah, you you almost the way this works. There are people who wake up like we can see. We know we know hundreds of people who believe deeply in a system, believe deeply in a tribe, believe deeply in certain authorities, and woke up from that. But at the same time, the world collectively generally doesn't work that way. The way it right. works is that one generation. Some people wake up, they draw attention to something, that generation dies, and the next generation has more people right. who are thinking, considering, wrestling, questioning. And so it takes people passing away and new people coming in with, with new mindsets and new ideas. And then when that group dies, the next generation is even more moving some other direction. It, it's not about necessarily changing everybody's mind. It's about putting in better ideas and watching the next generation start to pick those up and run with them. Yeah, it reminds me of something that I learned when Kelsey and I were going to counseling. Um, the counselor said, it's less about who's right and who's wrong, and more about what's healthy versus what's unhealthy. And so for us, I know that we've we've really tried to implement that. It's less about who's right, but what's going to bring us closer together and what's healthier. Yeah. And so I see I see kids, this this generation that's in the, the ten to seventeen year old, eighteen year old range, those kids are way more inclusive and accepting of differences than my generation. And it is night and day different yeah. from our parents' generation. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It is. And so I think we're heading the right way. I think we've got things to overcome, but I, I now I now have confidence in this world where maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I didn't. I have confidence that this world has the ability to deal with those things going forward because the next generation is showing that they are making leaps and bounds changes in their mindset versus their grandparents. I'm hopeful. Um I my perspective's a little bit different than yours, um, and maybe it's because I'm not a white heterosexual, privileged male. But I forgive you, and I accept your forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a couple of other things, Bill, that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else in the topic that we've already covered that you wanna you wanna say? No, no, no. I, I just maybe just concluding that topic, saying that uh, we all have prejudices. We all have biases. Yeah. We are all not objective when it comes to various things. Maybe sit with anyone you see as less than you for whatever reason. 
my suggestion would be just to sit with that and go like, why do I think that person's less than? Yep. And, and maybe the issue lies within you. Yeah. It usually does lie within us. That's it for me. Awesome. I loved that. You're a grandpa first, like dude. Yeah. Um, How's that? I'm a grandpa. I, I was pushing it away for a long time because um, I'm 41 years old. I don't want I, I, I like, I'm not, I love my son. I love my daughter-in-law. I love this baby that was on the way. That's not the issue. It's that I'm too young to be a grandpa. Let me be, <laughs> let me be a cousin or an uncle. Maybe even I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to have the title of grandpa. It makes me feel old. And then suddenly I see this baby for the first time. And that, that barrier, and it kind of ties into what we just talked about, that barrier just washed away. Melts away. And I realized like, oh, I'm a grandpa <laughs> and I'm excited. Like I, I'm now thrilled so cool. to be a grandpa. So it's yes. so cool. Garrett, uh, Garrett Jace Real was born 1159 at night on 10-3. He was 30 seconds away from having a birthday on 10-4. Which would have been Kelsey's birthday. Oh, well, that would have been cool. But uh, now it's the day before. Which is Parker's birthday. There we go. So we always <laughs> share the birthdays with somebody. Um, it, it's a beautiful thing. And life coming into this world, man, 22 hours of being in the hospital, six hours, oh, five or six thing. hours of pushing oh. and it not working. And eventually she had to go in for C-section. And I was so scared. Like I know that 99.999% of the time it goes right. But sometimes it doesn't go right. And I was just walking up and down the hallway pacing and just scared because it looked like it wasn't going right. Um, man, we, we, and then, and then on the other hand, I think like, you know, here we are with the model, modern convenience of medical technology and trained doctors. And a thousand years ago, it was just, uh, you know, a primitive human being squatting in the middle of an agricultural field and popping a baby out, you know? <laughs> well, so, maybe yeah. if it didn't work, you know, it, the result wasn't positive. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. So yes, I am a grandpa and uh, loving it. I was at the hospital yesterday and just holding this little one and just so thinking cute. about taking this baby on fishing trips and doing things as a grandpa. So I'm super excited and, and it's a beautiful baby boy. That's awesome. That's awesome. I was so excited for you guys. He's adorable. That baby is adorable. I think you. I think though you forgot part of his name. Oh yes, uh, the he was given the middle name of FamilyPawn.com. Um, yes, and I think I think our family is getting a four hundred dollar a year stipend uh, to to have that name on all official paperwork. <laughs> That's the pawn shop I work for, for the listener. I, I'm a pawn broker, a manager of a pawn store in Hurricane, Utah. And uh, my boss was joking around with my son, and that was the middle name he was given so that, so that we could publicize and advertise, <laughs> and, uh, and they could get a few extra bucks every year. Good plan. The other thing that kind of came to mind is Kelsey and I were kind of talking about the circle of life, you know, with Garrett being born, um, one of our friends that lives down in Arizona um, his mom passed away this week. And so talking to, to Kelsey and to our friend Miles about just this journey called life and how, you know, one person enters this world and another leaves. And, and so just sending lots of love to, to Miles um, this week. Um, it's, it's crazy to me to think about what I used to believe as far as death is concerned. And, and you know, Miles said that his perspective has changed, but experiencing it firsthand has been a completely different story. And so it's been interesting to hear his perspective. Um, 
And then kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about is um, my whole life, I've had to earn love and acceptance. And um, it's always been based on what I can do or what I give. And so two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, Kelsey really wanted to go see the play Wicked. And so she, that was her early birthday present, but it about killed me because she insisted I not get anything else for her for her birthday. It about killed me yesterday to have her wake up and me not have any gifts. Do you like, is that hard for you to not give somebody gifts? Yeah. And there's, and again, there's two sides of this coin. I don't really care. Like if, no, if my birthday happens, if people just say happy birthday or just give me a hug, like I'm great. I don't need something. That's um, what she said. She's yeah. like, I don't need anything. But when, but when it's someone else's birthday, yeah, there's this feeling inside us like we have to do something special and we want this person to know how special they are and to know how loved they are. And, right. and so we, we feel this guilt. So for instance, in Christmas time, there's been years where money was super tight in our family and my wife and I would just agree not to get each other something so that we could spend more money on our children. Mm-hmm. And and then my we would wake up on Christmas morning and I would just feel like I had kept my end of the deal and she'd kept her end of the deal. And I just felt this immense amount of like guilt and shame for not doing something. Um, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And yet here you are, you've done some, you've taken her to Wicked. Yeah, but it was uh, two weeks ago. Sure. I don't know that there's an easy way to wipe away I know. the feelings of it. And again, I think they're rooted somewhere in our ego. Yeah, it's um, my it's my need to feel good enough, and it's my need to um, earn her love. Yeah, and you don't have to earn it. She loves you for you. I know. She's. I know. I know. I know. And she she shows me that it's my own stuff that I've got to work through. But it, that was just something interesting that that came up this week. And yeah. And I bet listeners are tying into that. I bet listeners are remembering, remembering pieces of their life where, whether it was Christmas or whether it's a birthday where you agree to do something else at some other point or agree to do nothing at all so that you can put that money somewhere else and the, the feelings of shame and guilt that come up. Yeah. Yeah. We're always working on shit. So um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is I am listening to two audiobooks that I just wanted to throw out to listeners. Um, one is, the book is called Talking to Strangers. It's so fascinating. And he quotes a guy who's done a study on lying and deception. And um, so check that book out. And then the other one that I'm listening to is called The Ethical Slut. And it's also very, very interesting. Yeah, I love I love when you're reading stuff. I love when other friends of ours are reading things. I, I just love then because then it tells me like, oh, okay, then this is a good book and I'm going to go grab it. Um, those are two that I'm going to check out now. Anything else, Bill? I just want to make a note to listeners. Um, there are multiple places you can be listening to this podcast. There are other podcast streams that this podcast shows up on. Will you do me a favor, listeners? Will you become a subscriber? Whether you're listening on iTunes, whether you're listening on Stitcher, will you become a subscriber directly to the Almost Awakened podcast? Uh, There's no guarantees that this podcast will show up in other podcast streams forever. So become a direct listener by subscribing today. Also, there are lots of places you can participate. I want to name two of them. There is a Facebook group called Almost Awakened. 
You can become a member of that group there. And every week there are conversational quotes posted or topics posted or links to informative magazine articles that have to do with ideas around awakening. It's a great place for us to start to build a community and to start having conversations outside of the podcast about these kinds of things that lead to awakening. The second one is a Reddit forum. If you don't know what Reddit is, Reddit is the largest online community in the world. If you go to reddit.com, there is a subreddit, which is its own individual group, and it is called Almost Awakened. So if you just type in Almost Awakened as one word and the word Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T, then you will find the Almost Awakened podcast group there. Every day we're putting in neat articles about psychology, sexuality, um, consciousness, tools that change consciousness, some of the progress in certain Schedule 1 drugs in terms of treating PTSD, um, just the things this world is wrestling with that lead to awakening. Will you please also become a... Uh, member of the subreddit Almost Awakened and enjoy the conversations there as well. Check out our sponsor, Red Roca Coffee. Uh, next week, you tell me, I picked this week's conversation. Uh, is there something you think we got to hit on? I know we talked a while back about hitting on sexuality. You mentioned this week you've got a uh, a therapist who primarily deals with this topic. That might be really interesting sometime here in the near future too. For sure. I've got to reach out to her and see what her schedule looks like. She's fairly busy, but um, she's also really good at um, scheduling time to interview for podcasts. And so I'll reach out to her, but that might be something that we talk about next week. Um, Sex and sexuality and, you know, things related to that topic. Maybe we'll talk about the book Talking to Strangers. Um, So if you you haven't started listening to that book, Bill, get on it. I'll do that. I'll, uh, I'll download it today on Audible. Okay. And check it out, and maybe we could use that as something to, to hit on next week. Or if we're going to talk sex sex and sexuality, um, maybe listen to The Ethical Slut instead. I'll think about it and get back to you on Friday. Yeah, Friday, yeah, because that's usually <laughs> when you do. For the listeners, Mikkel does not want me having any prep time. She tells me at the last minute so that this conversation is more off the cuff. Um, I still try to sneak in some prep when she tells me, so she doesn't leave me completely hanging, uh, telling me on Saturday morning, but <laughs> but that's what she does, and she does it intentionally, so you guys can all get a kick out of that. Yeah, and one of these days, Bill, I really think that we need to record face-to-face, um, just so the listener knows. Right now, we're recording in two separate locations, but I think it's going to add a whole other dimension to be able to read your facial expressions and, yeah. To see when I'm smiling. A whole other dynamic that I think would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally get it. Uh, Love it. This was a lot of fun. I'm enjoying this podcast. It's really therapeutic to me. And and I know a lot of listeners. I just had a guy come in yesterday, Mikkel, to uh, the pawn shop here in Hurricane. He walks in and he goes, look, I've been listening to you for a long time, Bill, on other things that you do. But I am really loving this Almost Awakened stuff that you're doing great podcast you guys do a great job and i'm just every all the feedback from people who listen has been wonderful Uh, it's so much fun for me yeah leave leave a review on itunes it helps us get more visibility there uh if you've got something positive or negative to say we love constructive criticism as well Uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us yeah thank you this has been another almost awakened episode Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. 
offer coaching opportunities or extra support, visit NoNonsenseSpirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.